Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now as the end of the year beckons, we're taking an opportunity to look back on what was an interesting 12 months in politics. And joining me to discuss the year is the Irish Examiner's Deputy Political Editor, Elaine Lachlan, who also pens what is invariably a thought-provoking political column every Tuesday. Elaine, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mick. Elaine, I suppose we'll start at the end for a few reasons, because it's central to um, how the government operated in terms of the unique uh, situation we have with a rotating Taoiseach and also two pieces of legislation, which I think it's fair to say have dominated politics. First of all, the handover. Last Saturday, we saw this unique scenario. Michal Martin hands over the premiership to Leo Varadkar. What's the general feeling around Leinster House about it, Elaine? Yes, well, usually ahead of any sort of a cabinet reshuffle, there's massive anticipation, rumours flying around the place, perhaps some people briefing out positions that they might like to take up after a reshuffle as opposed to what actually happens in reality. And journalists have to deal with all of this kite flying and all the rest. But this time around, it really was the least shuffly of a reshuffle, shall I say, apart from the two men at the top who we knew well in advance were going to rotate the Taoiseach and Thonish's position, and then also the two finance portfolios, which again had been well flagged, there was very little surprise or drama around Leinster House last Saturday. The only thing I think that journalists weren't expecting was this new unit which will come in under the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's office now and that will focus on children, poverty prevention and also therapies for children with disabilities. But that really in the whole scheme of what a reshuffle generally is was minor and usually would be a side note at the bottom of any news report in usual reshuffles. So really nothing remarkable out of it and maybe that's what both leaders want for the next two to two and a half years is an unremarkable government which just keeps a steady ship and and keeps going and they don't want to get involved in drama because, like it or not, they probably will get involved in drama, um, not of their own making perhaps, or certainly not planned. But like we saw this year, there was plenty of controversy, even if both leaders were trying to stay well clear of it. Yeah, and one thing that I wonder about that, Elaine, um, the fact, as you said, there was practically no changes and a reshuffle is always seen as a refreshing and, uh, you know, a a government taking another run at things. So do we put it down to either they're relatively happy with the performance of the individuals in their portfolios or is it a case that because we have a three-legged coalition and particularly this is to do with two of the legs of it because the Green ministers basically state where they were, is it as much to do with internal party mechanics in the two parties rather than a belief that the very best people are in the job and they should continue doing so. 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of both, Mick. To be honest with you, the numbers really were against the three leaders. And as you said, Eamon Ryan, Green Party leader from the outset, had said that all of his ministers would remain in their portfolios and that there was no intention for any Green minister to move. So therefore, that kind of left the other two leaders hamstrung insofar as they couldn't look to, let's say, the arts portfolio or the transport portfolio for some of their finest and brightest because they were already taken up. We then had Michal Martin for many, many months saying that it takes a long time for a new minister to get on top of their role and to really start making changes. And he cited both the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, and the housing minister, Dara O'Brien, in that, claiming that they were now beginning to implement the types of change in policy that this government hopefully will have progressed significantly or or that Micheál Martin certainly hopes will have progressed significantly by the time they come to the next election. And I suppose as well, you have to remember that Micheál Martin was coming after a long stint in opposition. So you had ministers in there who didn't know their way around government buildings, around departments, weren't familiar with secretaries general or senior officials in the department. So probably it did take them a good deal longer to bed down and to settle than perhaps their counterparts in Fine Gael. Now, if you look at Fine Gael, Leo Varadkar, this time last year, had put all his ministers on notice and had said that he would be tracking their progress and their work throughout the year and said as well he'd be looking at backbenchers, uh, committee chairs, with the view of maybe promoting some, demoting others. So perhaps that's where the greatest surprise came was from Fine because we did think that there would be a bit of movement and as we've seen, there wasn't even movement across portfolios of the senior ministers, the vast majority of them, bar Simon Harris, who took on justice, and that's purely because Helen McEntee is on maternity leave. There was there was no change there. Um, now, again, as you pointed out, it's the numbers and how they stack up. And the fact that there are three parties sharing cabinet portfolios means that if you were to demote one person, uh, it could be viewed as you know, pointing the finger or not being happy with one individual. Um, Usually in cabinet reshuffles, if you have the whole cabinet to pick from, if you're in a majority government, or perhaps there's only two in the coalition, you've more numbers to deal with or to, to, to move about. You can easily demote, let's say, two, three senior members, and it's not viewed as you're picking on one individual. Whereas here, you, as I said, Leo Varadkar was kind of limited. Helen McEntee is off on maternity leave. He'd already promised Pascal Donoghue his job in um, Deeper. And then you look, you had Simon Coveney, a long time there. Simon Harris, again, a long time there. Heather Humphreys, viewed as a really solid performer and really well regarded within her party. So it, it would have been a, a probably a drastic move to demote some of those even if he did have the capacity to do so. Yeah, I can see that. All right. One thing strikes me, Elaine, and it may be the cynic inside me, but there was a lot of talk, and I think um, talk in, in a correct vein, about the issue of dealing with the integration of um, Ukrainian refugees and asylum seekers, which has become a major issue in terms of accommodation. And there was a lot of suggestions that it was too big for one department to handle it. Roderick O'Gorman was doing so, and he has a lot of other elements to his portfolio. So there was talk as to whether that might be a portfolio in itself. The ultimate outcome was that 
Some responsibility for that was given to the Green Party's junior minister, Joe O'Brien. Now, the cynic inside me suggests, Elaine, that this is a difficult issue because of the lack of accommodation. We have seen resistance in some communities. So, therefore, it's a political hot issue, if you want to put it that way. It seems a bit convenient that you throw the whole thing over to the Green Party and if there's a bit of flack, they're going to be the ones taking it wholly rather than any of the two main parties. Am I being too cynical with such a suggestion? I think you're being an educated cynic there, Mick, Um, (laughs) certainly. Uh, What had happened before this was, as you said, it had initially been floated that perhaps integration could come completely out of the Children's Minister, Roger O'Gorman's department and be put into either a new department or a different department. A lot of the responsibility for that, and especially in the area of direct provision, had been under justice in the previous government and was moved into children. Now, obviously, that came at a time before we were aware of what would unfold in Ukraine. Roderick O'Gorman himself even spoke to the Irish Examiner and said that he didn't want any responsibility hived off from his department, whether that was LGBT rights, whether that was children, childcare. He deals as well with the legacy of mother and baby homes um, and then as well, as I said, direct provision and Ukraine. So he has a large and wide and extensive uh portfolio of issues within his brief but he was adamant that he wanted to keep those. He was very open however to having a new junior minister within his department with who would have responsibility specifically for Ukraine and those coming here and seeking refuge here. That didn't come to pass and even at the time uh, the likes of um, Fianna Fáil Minister of State Anne Rabbit and even James Lawless another Fianna Fáil TD had been tipped to take up that role. Now, things kind of changed on Saturday, as I said, when we did get word of this new unit within the the Taoiseach's um, Department for Children. And we were told at the time as well that that junior ministry then was under question as a result. It was surprising, and I think the cynic as well, um, to follow on from your comments, might look at what has been taken out, essentially, or responsibility shared, at least, by the Taoiseach from the Children's Department. And that is responsibility for children, things like therapies. And he did mention child poverty as well. But you could argue that that side of Roderick O'Gorman's department is doing quite well. When you see, come uh, the start of January, parents will see a 25% on average reduction in childcare costs. And we anticipate further cuts in childcare costs in the coming budget. And as well, although the disabilities, access to therapies, those types of areas have been in the news and not for the right reasons over the past 12 months. Unlike something like the trolley waiting figures or the overall um, access to care in the health system, it is a niche uh, part of our health system and something that if you really did bang heads together, you would hope could be fixed in a short space of time because we're talking about you know tens of thousands of children who shouldn't be waiting but it's a small figure when you take the whole health system as a whole. Um, so maybe it's something that Taoiseach Leo Varadkar is looking at ahead of a general election, saying he could go having having you know headed up this unit that specifically looks at children, could go to the people and say, we've, we've reduced significantly the cost of childcare. Hopefully, you'd, you would hope um, he will have tackled those waiting lists and access to therapies. 
and and addressed child poverty and it would be a, a very good list of items to go to the electorate with come election time. On the flip of that, of that as you mentioned, uh, Mick, uh, dealing with the Ukrainian issue is going to be a longer term problem. We need to build houses and that doesn't happen quickly, as we know, over the past decade. Um, and we are going to see the very way the world is working at the moment, we are going to see an increase in people coming here seeking protection from other countries outside of Ukraine as well. So uh, cynically, I think you could say that, yes, Ukraine is a, is a more difficult problem to solve, certainly ahead of an election. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. Now, you mentioned, Elaine, about building houses, and I think it's fair to say that is the whole issue around the housing crisis is the biggest political issue current and everybody is already predicting will be so at the next general election. In that vein, uh, we've had planning legislation. There's two elements. So one was, um, I think it was called the foreshore bill that they included elements of how to reconstitute Umbor Planola, which has been in big trouble, but also the overhaul of the planning system. And there's some contentious elements to that. That was brought to the Cabinet, I think, and the second last meeting before Christmas and is going to be going through the Oireachtas in January. In terms of housing, Elaine, where do things stand as regards what the government said they would do, how they're going about it, and I suppose the performance of Dara O'Brien in the role? Yeah, well, I sigh when I talk about housing because it's something <laughs> that I've do. been speaking about since Alan Kelly was in office and it seems a lifetime ago now since even Labour and Fine Gael were in power together. But yet we've had successive housing ministers and the housing figures seem to be, and certainly the homeless figures seem to be only going in the wrong the wrong direction. Now, this government will point to things like the rent freeze that is currently in place until the new year, uh, the rollout of Cree Conaha to bring more vacant properties into use, the first home scheme, that's the shared equity scheme, and the fact that they will exceed their targets of 24,600 houses in the Housing for All plan for this year. We probably expect around 28,000. Um, all sounds good, but when you look at, again, look at the overall figures, it's a drop in the ocean. And more worryingly, while the figures are are positive for this year and exceed the targets, caveat there, the targets were based on 2016 census figures and mm. we know the population has increased since then. So we will, you would imagine, see a revision of those targets when the official census figures come out um, in the first quarter of next year. But also a worrying trend as we see commencements towards the later half of this year are down. October, we had 1,841 units commenced. That's down 31% year on year. So while the completions are up and above the targets, it's next year, the year after, and perhaps the year after that we now need to be worried about because if commencements are not in line with the 33,000 houses that Housing for All has to complete each year in the coming years, then those targets will not be reached. And we really need to be exceeding those targets, we know now, because of the population increase. The year ended as well with that vote of confidence or no confidence um, in Dara O'Brien government 
easily uh, saw that past um, their motion, their counter motion of confidence in Darrell O'Brien, and we wouldn't be surprised by that given the majority that they have. And it almost seems like every housing minister in order as a qualification, you nearly need to go through one of these motions. Um, at this stage, uh, it was it was drab enough, um, I think, the debate during that um, that motion. But I think the next year will definitely be critical for this government because they are saying that it takes time to implement policies. Darrell O'Brien has been retained in that area of housing. So into year three, he will be expected to deliver and deliver significantly. Yeah, and I heard something very interesting just the other day on radio. Peter McVerry was being interviewed and um, and I hope I'm characterising it correctly now, but my read of it was... He said that he agreed with many of the current minister's policies, that they had reversed some of the approaches of the previous government, but what was lacking was urgency. And I have to say that's something that chimes with me. I definitely think there's a change of approach, and or there has been a change of approach since this government came into power, but I would also definitely agree with him that there's a lack of urgency in dealing with the issues. And it's nearly as if they still want to approach this without implementing what you might call any emergency measures which would reflect how bad it is. And and that, in turn, leads to the question as to are they going relatively softly, softly, because anything that potentially could upset the heart of the electorate and you know, an awful lot of them are homeowners. They don't want to uh, to tread there in case there could be any backlash in that respect. I just, it struck me in that regard, particularly when we see things like the new planning bill and that. What do you think of that? Yeah, and I think the word emergency there you used, Mick, is important because actually Dara O'Brien, the minister, came under considerable criticism when he refused to categorise it as an emergency earlier on this year and was playing around with words and, and claiming it wasn't quite an emergency. Um, I think when we look at housing, it's been, as I said, it's been going on for the past over a decade now that we've had this crisis emergency you know, issue, problem, whatever word you want to put on it. And it's a bit like the frog in water, you know, you put a frog into cold water and gently uh, bring up the heat until it's boiling and the frog doesn't notice. You plop it into a pot of boiling water and it jumps out and survives. And I think that's probably a bit of what's happening here with the housing issue, you know, because we have seen over the past two years that governments can really respond at speed when an emergency Mm. happens overnight. We saw it with COVID when they were able to to essentially take over all the private hospitals in the country overnight to shut down the country, to limit us in how far we uh, left our homes. Major, major changes and and, um, restrictions placed on us. We saw it, we have seen it again with the Ukrainian crisis, you know, appeals to even church, unused buildings, church buildings, public buildings, um, even GA centres were contacted at, at, at a particular point and it was really an emphasis on getting things done and getting things done quickly. I'm I'm not saying that's wrong. I completely agree with that and the urgency that we saw in relation to Ukraine probably wasn't urgent enough, but it was significantly speedier and quicker than what we've seen with housing. And you just kind of wonder why weren't those appeals put out before? Um, you know, we have 
a lot of derelict properties, a lot of unused properties in state uh, ownership. And we don't even have to go, as I said, as far out as perhaps asking the church and asking a local GA clubs or or local sporting facilities to help us out here. We have a significant uh, portfolio of property across the country that's owned by state bodies, whether it's the HSC, local authorities themselves, and really haven't been uh, addressed over the past 10 years. Um, So I think it is a case that we can do things very quickly when and if we want to, Mm. but housing doesn't seem to, to, to be addressed as quickly as it could be. Absolutely. And I suppose the ultimate question there is whether or not that is down to political will. Uh, and some in the opposition in particular would suggest that it is, but it'd be interesting to see how that how that develops in the next 12 months anyway. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The other... Big issue, and one I'd suggest we haven't <laughs> got our heads around in terms of the public at all yet, and that is, of course, is the Climate Action. We the Climate Action Plan published uh, this week. This, Elaine, is where the rubber hits the road, where we're going to have to make changes to the way we live in order to meet these uh, climate targets. And I just wonder whether the public and the body politic are really ready for what's uh, what's coming. Yeah, and we were kept busy as political correspondents and political journalists over the summer when it's usually deemed silly season. Um, when a row erupted over the sectoral targets initially, um, those targets set across all areas from electricity to building to industry and agriculture, which of course was the most controversial. And if you remember back in July, the the, the row going on between Green Party leader Eamon Ryan, who wanted to set the agricultural uh, reduction at 30%, and the farming bodies and Agriculture Minister Charlie McConnell, who said anything more than 22% wouldn't be feasible. Now in the end, they reached that 25% target. And interestingly enough, transport at that time uh, 50% was the target reduction target set for transport which we probably were consumed by the agricultural debate and the row going on there that we didn't perhaps look at this because it's a significant reduction mm. and now I think as you said with that action plan published this week people are becoming aware of what exactly that 50% will mean for them and it will mean either not having a car or not using a car if you have it Um now, what the Greens especially are saying is um, in both areas, transport and agriculture, which probably are the most controversial at the moment, they won't be forcing anyone to do anything. So farmers won't be forced to cut the number of cattle they have. Uh, no one will be forced to sell their car or not buy a car. But they're going to implement policies and strategies and change the way things are done in this country. So people will be enticed 
to use public transport to get on their bike with more cycle lanes or to walk to work um, with safer kind of greenways and, and, and options in that regard. Um, and it comes the same with farming. What they're saying is there will be a natural decline in the national herd because there'll be a move away from perhaps the intensive dairying and beef herds that we have at the moment to more eco-friendly solutions and, and perhaps uh, farmers diversifying into other areas. Now, that sounds all well and good, but um, I wonder how rural dwellers would cope at yeah. the moment without a car. It, it, it just wouldn't be feasible in certain parts of the country to not have a car. That's exactly the point. I mean, I think there's a particular thing there in terms of rural Ireland and the lack of alternative transport and the nature of living in rural Ireland in terms of travelling various distances. And the other thing is basically in terms of safety. Uh, I've noticed in, in, in Dublin, for instance, over COVID, massive uh, improvements in cycle lanes and the safety of cycle lanes. But I don't think that has been matched at all um, in, in large parts of rural Ireland. And you'd have to wonder, is there going to be some serious political opposition if the incentives to leave the car at home or or if there's more stick than carrot, to put it that way, is there go- is this going to be another uh, issue that you're going to see the sort of urban v rural divide? Yeah, and I don't. I think there probably will have to be an acceptance that rural dwellers will have to rely on their cars more than urban uh, people living in urban cities and towns. But I think there's also a grey area where you have a large commuter belt um, around Dublin, especially, but also Cork and Limerick, where people are commuting and faced with either a bus that may or may not come and may arrive uh, an hour ahead of schedule or an hour behind schedule, I think people will still opt for the car. Um, I'm from County Meath myself and it's kind of, it's historical at this point, but I think it's a challenge that the government will have to look at. And the fact that many of our rail uh, roads were closed in previous decades. Meath is a county that used to have two rail networks that went both to Trim and the, the, the surrounding areas and to Navan. And now, uh, you know, all of those towns and villages along both of those routes are relying on buses, which, you know, depend on traffic. You don't know whether you'll be in for nine, 10 or possibly 11 o'clock in the morning. So I think that really has an impact on people and whether they use their car or not. Um, so I think investment in rail links will have to be upped dramatically if people are to be coaxed into using public transport. But there are the t- kind of things that take time, Elaine. I mean, we're not going to have major uh, rail links built in the next six to nine months, yet the all of the targets suggest an urgency that means there's going to have to be this kind of transformation pretty pretty immediately to some extent. Yes, certainly. And all these sort of big infrastructural projects do take time. And as well, I think there has been an emphasis. Now, it's changed in recent years, but, you know, certainly during the Celtic Tiger, there was a massive emphasis on building roads. And we do have a a really good road network across the country now that links most cities bar maybe Cork and Limerick. That's a bit controversial to even mention here. But we have had a significant upgrade of our road network. Meanwhile, there was very little new rail projects uh, developed in that time. And we even see um, with the the, uh, 
the falling down, I suppose, of that ring road in Galway recently, the uh, objectors to that won their case to that. That's been going on now for several years. In the meantime, traffic has been building up in Galway City and no alternative has really been put forward. In the amount of time that that court case and legal battles were going on around the second ring road uh, around Galway, we could have been developing a light rail system for the city um, and people wouldn't then need that uh, bypass of Galway. So it's just about thinking outside the box and I think we will need to see that. The Green Party are saying though that you know there will be a focus on, on active travel as they call it, cycling to work, walking to work, your e-scooters and there will be a million euro provided every day next year for those type of projects. But I think we need to be slightly more ambitious and need to see light rail projects in all our cities to start off with. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's a very good point about Galway, actually. That's because, God, anyone who, not to mind residents, but I've often visited and the traffic there is horrendous. But as you say, Ola, if somebody had been thinking laterally in some capacity over the last few years, the advances that could have been made. But I think thinking outside the box is something <laughs> the body politic will have to get used to as well. Elaine, just as we're at the end of the year, I just want to touch on the leaders, I suppose, you know, it's relatively fair to say at this stage, we've three main parties. Um, Leo Varadkar's taken over as Taoiseach. Uh, the year that was for him, you know, I mean, it's fair to say a fair bit of it was dominated up to a point by this issue over the investigation, the Garden investigation, the file going to the DPP about this leak of a consultant's contract that goes back a few years. Overall, did that dominate his year? How did he perform in, in your opinion? Yeah, it's been certainly something that was bubbling under the surface throughout the year. Obviously, when in July, when the DPP decided not to pursue any action against Leo Varadkar, I imagine Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael had breathed a sigh of relief and thought that was the end of it. But in recent weeks, it's cropped up again because we obviously had um, the SIPO uh, decision reported on and the fact that the SIPO, two members of SIPO, the CNAG, Seamus McCarthy and the Ombudsman, Ger Deering, had been of the opinion that SIPO should progress an investigation into the leaking and, of and, that And SIPO, just, just, just to point out, SIPO is the Standards and Public Office Commission that investigate any uh, breaches of regulations by politicians. Yes, and in the end, SIPO decided not to progress with any investigation. Three of the five members um, were of the opinion that there was nothing to investigate there or, or nothing that merited a full investigation. Um, but I think it is, it's, it, it's put it back into the limelight again and again that hashtag Leo the leak going round on Twitter and social media and it's it's a it's a hashtag that I think he just can't shake off now and I imagine ahead of any general election his detractors his opponents will be looking to refresh and renew that hashtag um, because as I said it's something that maybe didn't dominate the headlines all year but it's certainly an issue that's been bubbling under the surface and something that he just seems to not be able to shake off. And I think I think it's fair to say that, you know, he came in a particular wave and it looked like he was going to be this charismatic kind of great vote getter. It didn't happen 2020, but now's his chance. He has, if unless things fall apart, he has the guts of two years to show himself and... Uh, it's all up to himself from this stage on to see whether he, he whether he can live up to um, 
to the early promise, if you want to put it that way, and see how we go, how we manage going into the next election. Yeah, and I think there'll be very different expectations for Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach this time around. He came into the uh, to the role last time around as this bright new shiny leader after uh, Enda Kenny, and really people were willing him on and wanted him to do well, and it was he was deemed as a breath of fresh air this time. He is viewed as, you know, an established politician who's been in the role before, who's been in the role of Tánishtha and has settled in. So, you know, I think the groundswell of optimism that came with his uh, leadership last time won't be there and more will be expected of him because he is seen as someone who's, who's done the job before, knows what he's at and should be able to deliver. Now, Leader of the Opposition, Mary Lou MacDonald. Some people would suggest that the 12 months that were gone, she grew into the role of leader-in-waiting. Um, others said that that's very premature to even suggest that, but I don't think she'd put a foot wrong this year. She certainly didn't. Maybe bar the departure of Violet Ann Wynne, um, yes. th- that was a one, I suppose, unfortunate event that happened uh, within her her role as leader and, uh, you know, Violet Ann Wynne claiming that she really wasn't listened to um, and felt very hurt and that's the reason for her departure. Um, But apart from that, uh, it was perhaps a minor blip um, for Mary Lou and she, as you say, the opinion polls are only going one way for her. um, And there does... They seem to have plateaued in recent weeks. Now, maybe that's... Just uh, a ledge before they start ascending again, but they just there, there was a constant upwards, and it just seems to plateau a small bit. Mm, I suppose any party when they when they're up in the mid thirties, there's very yeah. little further they can really go, um, unless you're going to take out every single other party in the country, really. Um, so they will probably be hoping for slightly more come election time, perhaps even up as for as far as forty percent, and maybe opinion polls wouldn't even um, be able to gather that sort of information because it does come down to constituency by constituency basis when you're talking about a general election. And some of the smaller parties would always say, the likes of Labour, the SOC Dems, that their support base is never really um, captured correctly in a a national opinion poll. And I think Mary Lou Macdonald will be hopeful that the same is the case for her party that she may be able to get, you know, a second seat certainly in every constituency that they have a sitting TD at the moment and possibly even three um, uh, TDs come the next election in some constituencies. I'm thinking of the likes of Donegal. Um, Now, again, though, it's a very long time. You would imagine if this government goes the full way, the full two and a half years, it's a long time in politics and anything can happen. Um, in that time. And we have seen, as you said, a plateauing in in recent weeks. um, And that does coincide with um, the Hutch trial. So uh, while that's still going on, we can't say very much about it, but that does seem to have impacted on the public's view of Mary Lou Macdonald. Yeah, and funny you mentioned Violet Ann Wynne. I just thought it was interesting there recently. It shows you, there's no doubt the Shinners are really professional when it comes to politics because an issue arose about a an election. I think she might be a councillor or a, an activist in, in Mary Luzon constituency and it looked like she was extremely unhappy and there was a couple of stories about it. And the following Sunday, uh, 
lovely photograph appears on Twitter of Mary Lou and her colleague out for a Sunday morning walk. Obviously, the best of buddies. So they're very um, they <laughs> they know how to how to deal with these things and they do it very well. Now. Finally, uh, Elaine, Michal Martin ended his term as Taoiseach. I suggested, I may be a bit premature, but I wrote a column last week suggesting he may well be the last Fianna Fáil Taoiseach we have. He, I would think, I'd be interested what you think, but he started off a bit shaky. But I would have to say, I thought in the last 12 months, he really grew into the job. And to that extent, he could claim that he left on a high in terms of his own performance in the role. Yeah, and I think him going into foreign affairs is exactly the right role for him, even if people do say that it puts him in jeopardy because those who may want to move against him could easily do so because he his attentions will literally be across the world now in the Department of Foreign Affairs. But I think that's really where he excels. And I think that's probably part of the reason that he came into his own in the past 12 months because he has been able to travel. You know, he went to Washington, albeit got COVID and couldn't make it into the White House, but he's travelled extensively as well throughout Europe um, and really does come across as a really good leader, a solid performer when he is in those roles and meeting foreign dignitaries and his counterparts in Europe and across the world. So I think that's probably part of it. He also, at the beginning of the year, was able to to lift the veil on COVID and we moved out of restrictions and into a new post-COVID world. So that probably helped everyone in Cabinet really to get out, meet people, do their jobs, get out on, into the constituencies and um, make an impact in that regard. But I think as well, people grew fond of him. Um, the public began to trust him and saw him as a level-headed leader that was never going to rock the boat. And perhaps he's viewed as someone who will put put the, the country, the nation first, even ahead of himself. And again, going back to his current position, um, perhaps he's doing that. He's he's putting the country and politics first, as opposed to thinking about if he's out of the country, like we saw um, in previous governments with Labour. Um, will you know? Will people start to move? And could there potentially be a heave against him? Um, that danger does lurk when you are foreign affairs minister. But he he seems to want to to do that. And as well, I suppose we are looking at the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement coming up in the year ahead. He will want to have an influence over that and I imagine he would want to to make sure that the institutions are up and running for that significant anniversary. Yeah, it will be very interesting and I suppose, yeah, I, I very much agree with your assessment of how he did particularly in the last year as he grew into it. I would wonder in terms of a heave whether He's actually going to see through to the next election, but only time will tell. Elaine Lachlan, Elaine, thank you very much for joining us and running the rule for us over politics for the last 12 months. Very much enjoyed it. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks, Mick. Folks, I'd also like to thank, as always, our trusty engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. This is the last, I suppose, current, we'll have a special programme next week, the last a podcast of the year to that extent. I'd like to say Happy Christmas, Happy New Year, and I would also like to thank everyone for listening in, and I hope we have added to your uh, podcast listening experience over the year. 
and stay tuned in for the new year. We'll keep driving away, as they say. All the best, and we'll talk to you very soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.